0: It is our time, that time in our worship where we open the Word of God together and we study to show ourselves approved. Uh, we have been working our way through the book of Hebrews. We've been in it for a little over a year, believe it or not, uh, certainly over a year. Um, we are in the book, uh, I mean, in, the, uh, in chapter 11. So if you take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 11 and find your way to verse 32, we are going to, with God's help, look at verses 32 to 38. And while you're turning, of course, I need to set the stage just a little here. I want <clears throat> to let you know that my sister just recently bought herself a new car. It's a sporty little Miata that comes with all the bells and whistles, as most new cars do. When I saw it, it reminded me of just how technologically advanced the car industry is. Cars today come with a camera to show you what's behind you when you're backing up, warning signals and lights that go off to indicate when another car is coming up on either side of you. They have the capability to talk to you, to give you directions, to rotate their wheels, to make parallel parking easier, even parallel park for you. In fact, they can even drive without you. That's how advanced they are when a, when a product like this is endowed with everything that you can possibly think of to make your driving experience enjoyable, car salesmen say it's a complete package or a total package that's the that's the slang that phrase is a reference to a a packaged good such as a car or it could be anything that has all of its parts that fulfills all the necessary criteria for what it claims to do. Total package. I want to use that phrase this morning to describe the faith that the writer to the Hebrews has been talking about throughout this entire chapter, chapter 11. Since it's by faith that we live the Christian life, it is necessarily not by anything else. It is by faith. We were saved by faith. And we live by faith. As we've been arguing for months now from this very chapter, we live by the certainty or guarantee of God's promise to us of future blessing. That's our definition of faith. It's the writer's definition back in in the earlier part of this chapter. And that's our motivation to win our spiritual skirmishes. We win, we fight, we advance, we press on. Why? Because we have faith, a guarantee in God's promise of future blessing. And the writer winds down to the end of this chapter and gives us his last few examples of champions of faith. It it seems fitting that he would then pull the lens back a little wider now and present faith as a total package. As such, there are two aspects of living by faith in God's promise of future blessing that we need to rehearse this morning, and that will, of course, empower you to fight well the good fight of faith. They are specifically the short-term rewards and the long-term rewards of living by faith. Short-term rewards and long-term rewards. Let's start with the short-term rewards, okay? Living by faith rewards us in the short term. That's Verses 32 to 35, living by faith rewards us in the short term. Now this section looks at the positive results of living by faith in a current situation or any given situation. The following examples show that these champions lived by faith in difficult times and overcame their situations as God promised that they would. Each example of living by faith shows that these champions were obedient to the call of God in their lives because they knew that if they obeyed God, then what God promised them would happen. That's the short-term reward. They were to serve in situations that were very bleak, very difficult, but were promised victory by the Lord. And so they venture out in faith, believing God's promise of immediate blessing, and they were successful. Now before we run through a small catalog of champions here, I want to make a point just about how relational the Bible is and how this author is. I, I want to pause and just, this is sort of an aside We made the point over a year ago during our introduction to the book of Hebrews that it was a personal letter to the congregation. And we could picture the writer at this point as he winds up this chapter, sitting there writing this with his last few words, and he says, and what more shall I say, right? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon and and, and Barak and Samson, oh, oh, and Jephthah, and of course, David and Samuel and the prophet. You can kind of picture him just running this through in his mind as he writes. And as I read that, could you hear the conversational way that, of, of the writer's words? Very conversational. He, he'd like to go on with more examples, but he's, he's proven his point. And to, go, and to go on would really take up an inordinate amount of space, so he doesn't do that. So he merely mentions more champions without getting specific as to their claim of fame. In fact... He's so casual about this that is to say, in in just this passing comment, he lists these men out of chronological order. I may have escaped you, but it should be Barak, Gideon, Jephthah, Samson, and then Samuel and David. But it's this. It, 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 this is the way of casual conversation, right? This. We often do the same thing in our conversations with people. We're not so concerned about the specifics at times as we are about getting the point across. He was specific, very specific, up to this very point since the very beginning of the chapter. So he, we know that he cares about details. So the writer is at this point personal, conversational. He cares that we get it. So he tells us in verses 32 to 35 of faith's rewards that are immediate. So here we go. Faith's rewards that are immediate. He says, and what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, or of David and Samuel and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Stop right there. This is, we'll just go halfway through that last verse, verse 35. Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah were all judges in the period of the judges. We studied them extensively a few years back, if you remember, when we made our way through the book of Judges. And we saw that these men had, of course, clay feet. They were not what we would consider to be sterling examples of leaders. Yet they did rise to the occasion and were obedient to their individual calling of God. They were. We cannot deny that. They were faithful in carrying out his will in seemingly unbeatable odds. God called them to go and fight in unusual situations with the promise of victory. That was his immediate promise. That was the immediate reward. Do this in this way that I'm instructing you, and you will win. Now, in Gideon's case, the Lord instructed him to fight an army the army of Midian, which numbered in excess of 132,000 men. In fact, that was really only half the army. And he called them to fight them with just 300 men of the Lord's choosing. That was a ratio of 450 to 1, which from a secular standpoint would have been certain defeat for him. It was ludicrous, absurd, suicide. The 300 Israelite soldiers may have been good, but no leader can overcome an army of 132,000 men with only 300 foot soldiers, no matter how good they are. But in this case, God was fighting for them. God can beat any human army, no matter how big. And to make this very point to both unrighteous Israel then and the enemy, God whittled down Gideon's army to a ridiculously small fighting band of men. The victory belongs to the Lord. He will do it, and this is how he proved it. You and I might not know God's specific intentions or reasons behind his will for us, for doing something, for a long time, or maybe not even until we go to heaven. Not all of them. And it shouldn't really make a difference, beloved. It shouldn't. Why? Because the general reasons are good enough. He is God. He knows best. He's sovereign and he has a plan. So whatever God's will is for us in any given situation, we need to obey because God's rewards to us, his promise to us in the short term, are great. What are they? Things like this. His will is the best possible option for you in any situation. That's one. You will have my pleasure and approval if you do, God says. That's another. That's another reward. And the only way to be content in life is to know that you have God's pleasure and approval, of course. Those are just some of God's short-term promises and short-term rewards to living by faith in his word. Let's look at Barak. What's so special about this individual? He was a military leader, but he would not go into battle without Deborah, the prophetess and judge, by his side to give him confirmation that the Lord was with him. He needed the the prophetess to guide him in his fight with Sisera, the Canaanite. And she did. So she told him at an appropriate time, arise, For this is the day on which the Lord has handed Sisera over to you. Behold, the Lord has gone out before you. He went, and God gave him victory over the Canaanites. We see once again God's promise is, Obey my word in this way, in this context, and you will be victorious. That's the recurring theme here. And it was the same promise to Samson. We all remember Samson. Sometimes we remember Samson not for the good things in his life. But God did promise him unusual strength to defeat the enemy, as long, of course, as he didn't cut his hair. We all know that there was nothing special about his hair. It was a symbol of his faith in God's word. And as long as he maintained it and kept it uncut, he demonstrated his loyalty to God. Samson experienced the wonderful blessings of obedience, the victorious consequences in his walk with God when he carried out God's instructions, believing that obedience would bring him his desired result, which was victory. The greatest example, of course, of this is from the last moments of his life when he prayed to God for strength one last time to wipe out the military commanders who had congregated under one roof for a massive celebration. Same was true of Jephthah. He was another judge. He led Israel into battle, but this time against the Amorites. Oh, I'm sorry, Ammonites. Sadly, this Judges remembered mostly for his rash vow, just as Samson is, for giving into the wiles of Delilah and losing his locks. But Jephthah's life has some redeeming value. That's why he's listed here. The text states that he was filled with the Spirit of the Lord when he went out to battle at God's command. And guess what? He won, as promised. Samuel is considered by some to be a judge, but he is really a transitional figure between the period of the judges and the monarchy. His reputation for being faithful to the call of God in difficult times is well attested. And first and second Samuel will show the many times that God calls Samuel to do something with promised with a promised outcome, and Samuel obeys in faith, believing that God would be true to his word. And, of course, he was every time. King David is the last personality that the writer identifies in his list, the last one. He is among the greatest examples of how one lives by faith in God's promises, and that if you obey God, it will go well for you. Yes, even he, too, had his sinful moments, as we all know, but in spite of them, David lived through some horrendous contexts, even life-threatening ones, by obeying the Lord with the promise that he would prevail. And he did. The writer names the prophets as their own category, and, and they, as well as anyone else in the, New, in the Old Testament, showed us how to live by faith in God's promise of future blessing in order to carry out their divine calling. Here's something you may not know about the Old Testament prophets. They weren't just God's mouthpieces. No, they were God's object lessons to illustrate his relationship with Israel at any given time. How would you like to be an object, object lesson for God? Well, they were. One example is, of this is Hosea. We could give a number of others. I think this one probably has the greatest effect, though. In his tenure as a prophet, Israel was unfaithful to God as her husband, committing spiritual adultery, but but they couldn't see it, of course. So in order to demonstrate this, and more to the point, God's unconditional love for his bride, he instructs Hosea to marry a prostitute. She would leave him for another man. She would be abused by that other man. She would be sold by that other man as a slave in the end. Hosea was instructed to buy her back, which means redeem, and love her again. Can you imagine? She represented Israel's unfaithfulness to God, and Hosea represented God's unfailing love to Israel when he took her back. Now, regardless of the specifics of this terrible ordeal, albeit with a happy ending, God commanded Hosea to do a difficult thing that was sure to cause him heartache and pain. Yet the minor prophet obeyed the Lord because he trusted in the outcome of God's will for his life, that it would go well for him, and of course it did. Now, what follows these these men is a list of achievements in verses 33 to 35. They they are really God's promised outcome of obeying his word. Those judges, for example, that the writer mentioned, and all those that he didn't certainly conquered kingdoms as they heeded the will of God. The same could be said of King David. The prophet Samuel performed justice or acts of righteousness As his reputation confirms, in 1 Samuel chapter 12, the prophet addressed Israel after appointing a king and assures them of his choice and that his choice is God's choice because since his youth, Samuel had walked before Israel blamelessly and the nation agreed. He was just. Champions of faith who had obtained God's promises are many. This is just a smattering. Abraham received Isaac back as a, as a promise, the son of I'm sorry, he received Isaac the first time in a miraculous birth. That is the son of promise. Moses was promised a certain outcome as he led Israel out of Egypt, and that was the Exodus. Samuel anoints Israel's first king, who was Saul, as God promised. David is eventually crowned king, as God promised the truth that underlies or underlines these situations where each man received the fulfillment of what god promised them was that they trusted the promise by faith and proved that by obedience living by faith brings reward in the short term now for the rest uh, if, uh, the, of the acts that are mentioned here, the writer leaves up to the knowledge of his congregation to fill in the blanks with well-known Old Champion Testaments, uh, uh, Old Testament champions rather. Uh, we're obviously meant to think of Daniel, I think, who shut the mouths of lions, right? Or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who by faith refused to bow down to the king and were delivered from the fiery furnace by none other than God Himself perhaps even the second member of the Trinity. There are several who can be said to have escaped the edge of the sword because they obeyed God's word, trusting in his immediate reward. David, for example, eventually delivered out of the hands of Saul. Elisha from Jezebel. Elisha from the king of Syria. And it may be said of everyone mentioned up to this point that those who are mentioned in the rest of the chapter that he and she were strengthened by faith in God's promise for obedience during their weakest moments. We cannot be certain who else the writer has in mind when he mentions became mighty in war, put foreign armies to fight. Some of those mentioned in this chapter um, are, are, are obvious to us. But others of the history of God's people leading up to the Christian era uh, could also be in the mind of the other writer as well. Israelites who were genuine believers and lived during the 400 silent years between Malachi and the appearing of Christ. their candidates. I'm thinking especially of some of the heroes of the Maccabean Revolt. One such hero was Eliezer who's an elderly scribe of the Maccabean period. And his story is outlined in Maccabees, which is an apocryphal book. It is a historical book. It's not a canonical book. But that doesn't mean that this man didn't exist or wasn't a genuine believer in Messiah. Just to give you some context, 4 Maccabees 7 identifies the instruments of torture that were used on these Israelites in this period to be wheels, joint dislocators, racks, bone crushers, catapults, cauldrons, th- uh, thumbscrews, iron claws, wedges, and branding irons. Eleazar was martyred by one of these techniques. His testimony, along with those brave godly saints during that time, came for righteousness' sake, because of their expectation of a better country. Eleazar, and you can read the book of Maccabees, and you'll see where he actually says that he endures the pain of his persecutors because of a better country to come. He certainly knew and understood the writer to the Hebrews, especially chapter 11. The last example gives, the writer gives in this section of living by faith is the promise of God, in the promises of God's short term future blessing, are the women of the Old Testament, who, as mentioned in the first half of verse 35, receive back their dead by rec- resurrection. Of all the instances where widows receive back their, uh, their sons from the dead, only one indicates that the mother had faith. In the process. And that was the Shunammite woman who had encounters with Elisha in 2 Kings 4. She demonstrates faith that the Lord would work through Elisha to raise her son from the dead. So she sought the prophet earnestly once her son died, because he was away, the the, the prophet that is, and she seeks him earnestly in faith so that her son would be resurrected. Now, there may be other instances that were not recorded in the Bible, but that were common knowledge to the first century congregation to which the, Hebrew, uh, to the writer of Hebrews was addressing. We, we don't know. But let me reiterate the idea in this section of text one more time so that we're all on the same page. When it comes to living out God's will for our Christian lives, which we do every day, and especially in some very difficult setting, Settings that are so difficult that if we do not see them with the eyes of faith, we might even convince ourselves that it's impossible to carry out God's will in them. That, that difficult. When we're in them, we need to trust all the more the promises of God's immediate blessings to our obedience. And by immediate blessing to our obedience, listen very carefully, I mean the immediate consequences to our obedience, all right? As you're sitting there wondering, what are the short-term rewards of obeying the Lord, of having faith in his promises of, of immediate blessing? What is it that God promises us every time we obey his word with a particular con- in a particular context or situation? I will give you a short list of promises that are immediately fulfilled. You need to remember these. They have to be in the fore of your brain as you live out week to week, month to month, year to year, and on until the Lord returns. Here we go. We have his pleasure and approval immediately. And there's nothing greater than that, the pleasure and approval of God. Therein lies contentment. We contribute to the advancement of God's sovereign plan. Many times we're not exactly sure how, but we do. We can know that we live wisely and not foolishly, Ephesians 5.19, because we live by the truth. Right. We put ourselves in the best possible situation when we are in the will of God. When you do the will of God, at that very moment, you can be absolutely sure, no question, that you are in the best possible condition that you could possibly, the possible condition ever. Number five, we have confirmation that we are, that we are um, right in our decisions when they are according to God's word. The decisions we make at that very moment, on the basis of God's truth, are right and they're just. Now those are the immediate rewards of faith. Do what God says, and you will find yourself rejoicing in the end, experiencing true contentment. That's what this first half of our our text is all about. And here's what you need to keep in mind. This is extremely important. If you don't get this, you can get easily sidetracked. What constitutes being victorious in any of our situations in life is that we have obeyed the Lord. That is what constitutes victory in your particular situation. It is not that we have brought about a particular desired end, right? Let me illustrate what I mean. If you refuse to lie to your boss, the victory is that you are obedient and you please the Lord and you have his approval. The blessing that comes from that are some of what we've just listed, contentment, rejoicing, peace of mind now you might be saying but I, but i lost my job because of being obedient how is that victorious the answer is that victory in our day our day-to-day struggle i should say in the good fight amounts to whether or not we come out of each spiritual skirmish having been faithful to the word of god that's victory That's it. If you do, then you are victorious, even though your obedience to God might make your literal situation worse. You see the difference? It just so happens that for many of the Old Testament champions of faith that we're looking at, like the judges, God's desired end was literally to subdue human enemies in battle. So when we were obedient, or when they were obedient, rather, to carry out God's wartime strategy, they could count on winning a literal fight. That was the victory. That was the short-term reward. But our fight is not against literal flesh and blood, right? No, Paul tells us that. It's against the spiritual enemies, the dark forces, So the principle that we pull out of these Old Testament battle contexts of holy war for ourselves is spiritual victory. God calls parents to raise their children in a biblical fashion because, in the first place, it's what God wants. In the second place, it's the best way you can do it. Now, if they listen to you, they will benefit in their adult life. But there's no guarantee that they will or turn out to be well-adjusted and responsible citizens, much less saved individuals. There's, There's no guarantee of that. Part of that depends on their response to how you bring them up. And part of it, the saved part, is really God's business. God rebuked Eli for not raising his kids properly, and eventually they became wicked adults whom God executed. But God did not rebuke Samuel, whose kids turned out just as wicked, and whom God executed. Eli was not victorious in his parenting. Samuel was, because he did what God told him to do, regardless of how the kids came out. When we say that faith rewards in the short term, we mean in the first instance that living the Christian life by faith is the most rewarding life there is. Though it is the most difficult life to live in a fallen world, we made that point last week, and though suffering and persecution is integral to it, it's nevertheless the best feeling in the world to know that you are right with a holy God and have this pleasure and approval in what you do. The whole world could be against you. It doesn't make a difference. It's empowering. That's true contentment. David was in God's will. He was God's man. He would be God's appointed king, even though for a time he was outlaw, public enemy number one, and hunted as a fugitive by Saul. He knew this. He wrote many praise psalms in his life. The other psalmists rejoice in their trials that they believed were God-given and good for them. Psalm 119.71. It was good that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. Well, we move now from this part to the next part, which speaks of the end-time reward of faith. That is God's promise of future blessing in the, in the, in the return of Messiah with his kingdom. Let me say it this way, to be more specific, and I'll I'll put it propositionally as I did the first truth. Living by faith rewards us in the long term. First part was that it rewards us in the short term. This now, verses 35 to 38, it rewards us in the long term. Now, we've argued this before. It's the major theme of the entire chapter. The writer rehearses it once again. He says in the second half of verse 35, straight to the end of verse 38, and others were tortured, not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mocking and flogging and further chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They were about Uh, They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, people of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts on mountains and sheltering in caves and holes in the ground. Here we have evidence that the literal outcome of an Old Testament saint who lived by faith was not always positive. Maybe we can resonate with this more. And that's because here, in in this rather bleak-sounding section, the writer focuses our attention on God's promise to be fulfilled at the end of time. He wants us to see that God's promise of end-time blessing, Messiah's return, Messiah's kingdom, our eternal inheritance, the fact that we will spend eternity pleasing him, those rewards should be our greatest motivation to fight for righteousness in our sojourn on this earth. many of the Old Testament champions who led the way for us in this wound up tortured and subject to cruel and unusual punishment, and even and even were martyred. Many others had no place to call home, but they were destitute and they wandered about. Philip Philip Edgecombe Hughes puts it this way in his Commentary on Hebrews, quote, If the faith of God's people could boast of spectacular achievements in the form of famous military exploits, remarkable deliverances, and even the raising of the dead to life, it was no less triumphant in the willing endurance by others of barbarous tortures and cruel deaths, End quote. He's right. We ask the same question again. How is this so? Maybe you've asked that a lot. How is it that Christians still may be said to triumph when they're taken advantage of, punished unjustly for their Christian worldview, castigated and marginalized, even even by compromised church leaders today for not subscribing to a woke mentality or championing social justice? How can it be said that we're victorious even if we should lose our lives for Christ's sake? Simple answer is because we have a reward reserved for us in heaven. That's why. We've already won the war in Christ, beloved. Our prize is waiting for us now. Impervious to moth, robbers, rust. Those champions of old saw resurrection to eternal life as more desirable than being spared from torture and and even death. To compromise their faith, to denounce their faith, just to be restored to a, a normal lifestyle would amount to a defeat. Quality of life should not be more desirable than the glorified life that awaits us. writer doesn't provide any more specific examples of Old Testament saints. As I say, he relies on the historical knowledge of his audience to fill in the blanks. So in case you're a little bit weak on your Old Testament history, let me give you a few. We might start with Jesus' declaration that Jerusalem killed the prophets and stoned the messengers sent by God. One such individual was Zechariah the priest, stoned because he pronounced judgment upon sinful Israel. Jeremiah was certainly tortured, and tradition has it that he was eventually stoned to death in Egypt by his fellow Jews. The psalmists testified that they were tempted to follow the crowd on the broad road at times because, well, it looked good. But they talked sense into themselves, and they avoided such powerful, ungodly influences. Asaph admits, Psalm 73, my foot almost slipped. For I envy the evildoer. He talked himself out of that one. David says, Psalm 37. Actually, he admonishes his countrymen. Listen, don't get upset because of evildoers. Do not be envious of wrongdoers. Again, he says, don't get upset because of one who is successful in his way. Because of the person who carries out wicked schemes, cease from anger, abandon wrath. Don't get upset. It's, it leads only to evildoing. For, for evildoers will be eliminated, but those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the Lord. Again, he says, better is the little of the righteous than the abundance of many wicked. This is wisdom literature, beloved, classic. Wisdom teaching from King David. Finally, he says, turn from evil and do good so that you will dwell forever. If it sounds to you as if the godly who are finding the influence of their pagan surroundings tempting and David is calling them to stand firm, you're right. That's exactly what's happening. And what motivation does David use to give them to stand firm? God's promise of end-time blessing. He says it this way, Wait for the Lord and keep his way, and he will exalt you to inherit the land. When the wicked are eliminated, you will see it. That's the promise. Tradition also has it that Isaiah was sawn in two with a wooden saw, although there's no reference in Scripture to this event. But according to Elijah, his report to the Lord Putting God's prophets to death by the sword was the order of the day. He says, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of armies, for the sons of Israel have abandoned your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I alone am left. They have sought to take my life. John the Baptist knows about that. He was executed that way. The reference to sheepskins, goatskins is most likely to God's prophets. Again, that was characteristic of their attire. They also were quite destitute, driven to live that kind of life, wandered in the desert on mountains, shelters in caves. For a while, according to 1 Kings 17, God had Elijah hiding from Ahab by the brook Kirith. God said, and it shall be that you will drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to provide food for you there. He was drinking out of a brook and got his food from birds. I know, it's not that as, I know it's not as bad as that for you, is it? The rest of the description has been the experience of God's saints down through the centuries. And it's hard to pinpoint exact examples of the Bible, but I think Jesus himself is enough. He is a classic example Isaiah prophesied of him, chapter 53. He was despised and abandoned of men, a man of great pain and familiar with sickness. And like one from, from whom people hid their faces, he was despised and he had, they had no regard for him. However, it was our sickness that he himself bore and our pains that he carried. Yet we ourselves assume that he had been afflicted, struck down by God, and humiliated. But he was pierced for our offenses. He was crushed for our wrongdoings. Punishment for our well-being was laid upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the wrongdoing of us all to fall on him. What was Jesus' motivation to endure even the cross and be separated from God, from what was, no doubt, an eternity? Well, Hebrews 12, verse 2 says, it was for the joy set before him that he endured it. That is, it was the completion of Jesus' work and his exaltation to the right hand of God, together with the salvation of the elect of God and the pleasing and glorifying of the Father whose will it was for Jesus to endure this. That was his joy. That was enough. That was the long-term reward that he looked to and was able to endure even the forsaking of the Father. That was God's promise of future blessing to the Son. Beloved, we've been arguing in this second section that living by faith rewards us in the long term and That is, our our heavenly inheritance. Like those mentioned here, we too need to hold on to this guarantee as our motivation to endure persecution for the Christian life. If you live Christ, live by his word, by the book, there's no question that you will be persecuted. And sadly, even by compromised Christians, it's happening all over the place. Jesus says that that this is a foregone conclusion in Matthew five, uh, Matthew 10. He says, if they have called the head of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they insult the members of his household? Jesus is head of the household here, and we are the members of it. If he's persecuted, we'll be persecuted. If they hate you for your walk, remember they hated him first. And one of the greatest motivations we Christians have is to set our hope then on the better country. It should be the object of our joy as it was Christ's, all that it represents. When that is true, you can endure anything God brings your way. Ambrose, Bishop of Milan, back in AD 374, was on the side of the angels, I think we could say, and in his letter to the church of Verkeli, He said this regarding the Christian fight of faith. 374. Quote, They were found most strong when thought to be most weak, and they did not shrink from the mockings of men because they looked for heavenly rewards. They, on whom the beauty of eternal light was shining, did not dread the darkness of the dungeon, fed to the full by fasting. They did not seek to be diverted by pleasure, refreshed by the hope of, e- of eternal grace. The burning heat of summer did not parch them, nor did the coal of icy regions break their spirit, for the warm breath of devotion invigorated them. They did not fear the bonds of men, for Jesus had set them free. They did not desire to be rescued from death, for they looked forward to being raised to life with Christ. That's wonderful. I think Paul said it better in Philippians 3. We heard read in our scripture reading for this morning, verses 8 to 11, Paul said, not that I've already attained it, but I press on, that I may attain to the resurrection. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ, Jesus my Lord, from whom I have suffered the loss of all things. And I count them mere rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, which, uh, but, w- but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if somehow I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Notice just a few phrases here. He says, I press on that I may attain the resurrection, in pressing on. We've said a lot about that in weeks past. This is what pressing on means to Paul, a part of it. He counts all things that he had achieved by his own hand in his unconverted life as loss compared to knowing Christ, the surpassing riches of, of knowing Christ intimately. To him, to know Christ perfectly someday is worth more than anything else, In life, he had exchanged his earthly achievements and reputation as a Pharisee of Pharisees to be a slave of Christ. The righteousness that was given to Paul, Christ's righteousness, is all that mattered to him. And he could then know the power of a resurrected life. By the way, this refers not only to his conversion, in which he was resurrected from the dead, spiritually, right, our spiritual condition. We were dead, we are made alive. But he lives in light of his resurrected status that he will occupy in heaven someday. In other words, he lives a resurrected life. The kind that we will live in heaven someday. That's the idea. The last phrase is vital in verse 11, if somehow I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. I love this verse. I'm so glad that the Holy Spirit saw fit to put it in. This might add an element of uncertainty in your minds as to whether Paul thought he would attain resurrection. That's, of course, absolutely false. In light of everything that the Apostle Paul has said with regard to resurrection in Romans and 1 Corinthians 15, Paul speaks of it as a certainty. There is no doubt here. No uncertainty. The idea of somehow or in some way, are you ready for this, refers not to the goal of resurrection, but to the way to resurrection. In other words, there is no doubt that we, we all in Christ will have our bodies resurrected on the last day and be in heaven with him forever. That's certain. What's not certain is the way or the route that we take to get there. It might be, for some of us, martyrdom, as it was for Paul. Hard to think about that in America. Some other kind of death, perhaps, that we endure. Or maybe we will be alive when Christ returns. Who knows? We don't know. The point Paul makes is this. We shouldn't care. We shouldn't. Come what may, we press on and let the Lord decide how he will bring us home. And we press on believing firmly in the reward, the better country. Let me say in closing, beloved, the immediate reward to obedience is God's pleasure and approval, which brings True contentment. And the end time reward, that's glory. When you are certain of both, you can carry out God's word without hesitation. And in any context, at any time, no matter the literal consequences. How powerful is that? Does that describe your life? It should. It can. It must. Our Father, we are grateful for your goodness to us.